There you are. You're in oh, your chair now. Oh, okay. How do I make myself a serve? Oh, there we go. I'm you just all... have to move a little bit and trick the computer. Yeah, there we go. I've got a little bit of uh, stuff here in between my, my headphones there, but otherwise I'm, I'm here and I'm chilling, but I feel shorter than you. I need to like position myself. Oh, no. You're placed a little higher and also a circle as opposed to a green screen there. Yeah. I don't have a green screen capable monitor, but this is a the next best thing. It feels like we're in a recording studio with a, a nice fire behind us, a nice it roaring fire. Does oh, like, said. like we gathered around a campfire to discuss the Dan, which is uh, what you want. Yeah, that's what we announced last week, and for once, we're following through, talking <laughs> about Steely Dan, the great band Steely Dan. The Dan, as a uh, as the Dan fans call him, um, Steely Dan for the outside dads who uh, aren't quite hip with uh, the inner workings of the Dan. The Dan, I think what we're going to find is a band with a lot of um, room for us to find our own thing in it. And uh, it always has been. It's always been something that's expansive and uh, you could find something good in it. You have your Steely Dan shirt on. Um, I do. This I have is my uh, C- Citizen Dick, Dick, is that what it says? Yeah, yeah. Citizen Dick, that's the band from Singles, <laughs> the Cameron Crowe movie. It's like a Mother Love Bone Pearl Jam kind of band. You can see the Mother Love Bone-ness of their silhouettes there. Hard to get nice. into our new circles, but uh, yeah. I see it, but yeah, this is my, my Steely Dan shirt that I bought from uh, the when I saw them in 2018. It says on the tour there. Uh, unfortunately, that means I, I did not get to see when... Uh, Walter Becker was still alive. He, he uh, yeah. passed in 2017, but they're still great. And this is a, a baseball style tee, so I've got a, a name and number on the back. You got any guesses for what it says? Um, no, you're going to have to help me there. All right, all right, I'm gonna have to turn around so you can see. You see that? A19, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant, good. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. This is my my A19 Steely Dan baseball tee. <laughs> Um, I I think I've uh, always been a Steely Dan fan in a way. When I hear them, I say that is good music. I like everything I hear from them. I you know I think everyone has been, and they just don't know it. Who doesn't yeah. know Who doesn't know some of the top you know hits from uh, their their first album from Can't Buy a Thrill? Who doesn't know Reeling in the Years, Do It Again? That sitar music is famous. It's you know it's iconic for a reason, and it hasn't been topped. No. Um, well, for me, I think we will find our diverging interest as I'm more interested in Steely Dan, the fusion band. And I think maybe you have more of their rock interest. Their first three albums are their rock albums. Um, mm-hmm. Up to Pretzel Logic. And then after that, they just go full, like, full fusion into jazz and stuff that I'm into. And that's the good uh, shit for me. The bands I've always liked have always had huge blues and R&B and jazz influences. More so the... the Formers though than than the latter like even the likes of like uh we, we talked about Elton John before like on our Rocket Man episode uh, he's of course has a huge like Southern blues influence and you hear that a lot on a uh, variety of his albums as well as the the workings of the the pop music there and Steely Dan definitely has that as well but uh, also to like a, a different degree they're offbeat and odd in interesting ways very <laughs> unique um, yeah I agree and and they kind of like it's it's interesting because they don't have the sensibilities of a pop band, but no, they none. <laughs> but their music is still very broadly appealing. 
it is really yacht rock for dads in a way. I mean, <laughs> it is like the most laid back, um, laid back. But then you keep thinking about how laid back it is and how soft it sounds and how much it sounds like it is somehow angry at the revolu- revolution happening in music when they're beginning. Like, they're just, like, these denimed-looking dads, like, coming up on stage and being like, yeah, we're going to stick with the way music's always been while people are becoming more androgynous and showing different sides of music. But then you keep looking deeper, and I think the deeper you look into Steely Dan, the more you start seeing their, like, beyond their sound. I think you start realizing that doing it softer and being in some way sardonic and cutting is even more dangerous than doing it hard. Like, it, it's more cutting when you... When it sounds soft, but you're saying something mean. Mm-hmm. Oh, and they have an interesting uh, fixation on certain subjects, like the influence of their their backgrounds really comes through, and the uh, the quirkiness kind of of their worlds. They have this uh, kind of upper end New York vibe to a lot of their songs. Uh, Steely Dan is famous for their kind of uh, character driven lyrics. You know, these interesting stories that they they have these uh, narratives that they kind of weave. Uh, a lot of which are based upon the, you know, the leading members' uh, backgrounds in, in New York, uh, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. Um, and that's one of the more interesting things as well, because generally, uh, having uh, grown up being, a, you know, chorally trained, uh, I have a, a greater fixation on lyrics and music generally than, than a lot of other people. So I'm just naturally drawn to that. So the... the odd sense of uh content and particularly in uh donald fagan's uh like like unique sense of intonation in, mm-hmm. in singing yeah. uh is something i absolutely love about Sealy dan i think for me especially being like and being a bit of a drummer i think uh, maybe i'm interested in like the metrics of the jazz and and how a, how a song really moves and maybe i take vocals more just as another instrument than than you would yeah, I, I, I feel something. sometimes it's a blessing and a curse. Uh, and I notice this whenever I talk about anybody with music. It's like I uh, fixate on, on, on the words and the singing mm-hmm. far more than, than other people do. Uh, but, you know, that's, that just makes me better at singing at the same time, too. I can belt better than, than most of my friends in the car. And I think uh, I can drum better than them, except there's, it's very hard to get to a drum set. So. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the nice thing about being a drummer is you never have to prove it. Um, but but one of the nice things about the Dan is uh, the the particular quality of their mix and their compositions really puts forward every facet of the band. You can hear every instrument. Nothing is really left in the background. Yeah. And everyone gets a moment to shine. Um, although I'll say as well, one of the other particular facets that I love about them and a lot of rock music from this era as well is that particular fusion of, of jazz that brings in uh lots of loud uh and, and prominent trumpets and saxophones into the into the mix there yeah for uh, sure. that that is the best in my mind there's nothing greater in this world than a bitchin saxophone solo. <laughs> i want to say they always had that too they were never only a rock band i think just after the first three they really became not a rock band at all i think they became a you know a fusion unit of session musicians like practicing toward like the most perfect studio sound after yeah. those first three but those first three are still bangers and they're full of great songs yeah they're they're some of my favorites i think uh and, and in general the uh 
early albums, or at least like a handful of them, are pretty unimpeachable from like a, a, a list perspective. Especially the the first one, "Can't Buy a Thrill." It's just we'll it's see. <laughs> packed packed with classics. We I both think. put together a list of three, right? And uh, we'll yeah. see. We'll see well, how we come well, out. It was a hard list to to say. When, once we get there, I'll say. Yeah. Um, because I I love all of them. Uh. And you know, I, I've I've been listening all week. I've been listening to Steely Dan all week oh. now in preparation for this because I was, it, it, I was so excited when you just randomly brought up Steely Dan last week, and I just got entirely pumped to do this. Yeah, um, I'm I'm very pumped. I've been I, listening for the last three four weeks and um, a little bit early on this year, but I've really dove in. I decided yeah. uh, I'm getting older. I'm an older dad. I need my old dad yacht rock music right now. You can see I brought with me my uh, Steely Dan records. Oh yeah, here's my my Pretzel Logic vinyl, and I oh, you have more than the, that. Okay, the Royal Scam as well. These are oh, the beautiful. two that I have. I'm gonna catch up on that. I'm, I just got my uh, vinyl player, which is part of why I'm getting into music. That um, I think uh, uh, music from a certain era was made so that it would be played on a vinyl, and that's the kind you want to collect, right? Is the um, even in some of Steely Dan's records, they they wrote, they wrote inscriptions, maybe even on that one, I think, saying what kind of vinyl you should play it on. Um, I know they did detailed notes on a few of their records saying, here's the uh, machinery that you're meant to listen to this on. So uh, just, you know, putting it on our phones, we're definitely not get, getting that exact experience. I'll have to look. I know my, my current record player is a very basic baby's first, you know, vinyl kind of deal. So the, the sound quality on it is kind of bad yeah. uh, i think uh, and and so generally i still go to the uh the streaming uh library that i have uh for the best quality but i still love like owning them and physically having them on the the vinyl here and of course like with anything you know the the artwork is a lot of the appeal you know of course and it's yeah. inter interesting for just display and, and seeing purposes and uh good good to have uh, yeah, i think i gotta invest in a in a better player though so that they have a practical purpose as well something about like the tangibility of being able to like touch and feel each song on a record really makes a difference like on a cd it's all digital data right but on a vinyl it's like a, a hard physical representation of sound i mean that's you have their tracks divided you can literally see yeah. you know when when you get in there, the differences like in how long certain tracks are, like this one I'm I'm looking here on Pretzel Logic. It's like the third one is like a really lengthy one in there. <laughs> it makes them beautiful. It makes every vinyl look completely different and unique because no uh no two albums have the same amount of songs that are the same run run times, yeah. You know? Of course like you have those old albums that are probably mostly four minute songs and uh, separated pretty much standardly, but but really, every vinyl is totally unique, whereas a disc, everyone's the same except it has digital information inside it and like a little print on it. Like that's not, you know, that's not tangibly the music to me. It it kind of goes same thing with film. You know, you could say the switch from film to digital is that there is a there's a tangibility that gets lost, uh, especially being back at the theaters now and watching uh, 35 millimeter prints again. Yeah. You know, the experience is, is just, it's different to, to see it for real. And also, uh, the, the difference it goes about in making those kind of things, um, you know, when you have to actually physically put the music on the record or you have to put the, you know, pictures on the film, you know, there's a different thought process that goes into it as opposed to the very liberating sense that you get from digital music in which you can just endlessly record anything you know as, as with film as well which is is a, it's, its own benefit and you know 
progress, but also uh, it loses something in the mix, obviously, there. Now, uh, I'm, I'm reluctant to say that one is better than the other, but also <laughs> yeah. we, we kind of know. I know. I think you could look at the texture of film and say that that is inherently better. But then, I, then I look at the diversity that accessibility allows, and I, I think is that better than having texture film? Probably. Well, I don't know. Well, and you could go for even further and say, then you know, is is recorded music better than live music? You know, and then that's a whole other different thing as well <laughs> to talk about. And um, uh, I definitely having seen Steely Dan live as well. That's another special experience um and, and actually in prep for the show here uh i did a uh, dig up my uh a, a single recording i got from when i did see them live in, in 2018 and i'm gonna send it to you if you want to check okay. it out it's just, yeah. just a little clip of of them performing uh asia which cool. is of course from the the album asia as well which is uh which may the- may or may not be good we're going to rank them we don't know if asia will make either of our lists honestly so it's yeah. It's again. It's it's tough to say with, with how <laughs> yeah. or, with how great it is. Like their li- the list could really be any, and I would say, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I don't even know. I'm not 100 percent committed to my ranking as of this moment. I'm, like, I'm not either. Um, <laughs> I might even change it from here. I I have one seated out that I'm thinking about. So we'll see how it plays out. Mm-hmm. I have one potential tie. I should say. That's that's kind of how I feel too. But okay, cool. <laughs> we could just do top four if you want to. <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, when we do it, I think. Uh, how do you want to do it? We could play a few seconds of, of favorite songs from each. Would that would that make sense? Sure, sure. We'll definitely have to talk about our favorites. Uh, we're just co-opting this entire episode uh, to talk about Stealing Dan. Well, I, I don't even know if we'll get to the sting at this point, but that's okay. <laughs> um, Stealing Dan will be the name of the episode. We won't talk about the other... Uh, we'll, we'll give a few minutes to the we, sting. It'll be like really the Breakfast Club. We should have made this the FM episode and just in a Breakfast <laughs> Slick Club situation where we don't talk about the film at all. It's always was, still possible. That was a funny thing, because they wrote the, the title theme to the movie FM, which is a film nobody knows, because uh, <laughs> apparently it was trash, and I know it was trash because Donald Fagan told me that on stage when they played the song. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so interesting that you saw them like Steely Dan, not traditionally like a live band. They didn't do very well live early on. I think li- more recently they probably did better live than they ever used to do. Well, well Fagan and uh, Becker were, were reluctant to. They were really more focused on like getting the sound right, and more and more they brought in like just studio musicians to round out the sound of the album and stuff. They didn't really want to tour and and such, and that kind of upset other members of the band yeah. and caused more and more to flake off. Like it's it's kind of hard to get a sense of who Steely Dan is as a collective, other than. Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, yeah, you know, yeah, as exactly. these lead creative minds there, but they're not obviously the the only instrumental members of the band, particularly in the beginning, when you have uh, people like David Palmer, who you know uh, did a lot of the live you know singing uh, for the band, as well as uh, you know the main vocals on tracks like uh, "Dirty Work" and uh, "Brooklyn," uh, which are both beautiful favorite songs of mine from that album. Yeah, absolutely. I think about it and. Really, to take them on tour, you're never going to get all the members that were in all the later songs. After those first four albums, they kind of broke off and became studio, and they had, like, session musicians coming in. Especially now, since, you know, Becker is gone, and so Fagan is really, like, the last uh, live voice left there. But in in some sense, like, that's also one of the more important. Again, like, I'm going to talk here from a 
vocalist focused you know listener okay. here is that having the, the the lead singer of the band there still is kind of very vital to keeping mm-hmm. the sound consistent uh you know there are there are bands that have survived after losing their lead singer for various reasons or another but it's always very different and it feels like a, a shift and sometimes not the same but even as other band members swap out uh you know it's I, I don't want to say easier, but less, uh, you know, or more seamless, you know, as close to seamless, I guess, as you can get, you know, by replicating their their particular sound or style, as opposed to a musician uh, or, or a singer, whereas, like, replicating a voice is just nigh impossible. You just have to go in a completely different direction. Absolutely. Um, I, feel, I feel good about our early discussion and what we've introduced uh, the band as. Um, do you think they need any more context before we get into our ranking of their albums? Um, I don't think so, unless you want to talk about the, the, the doc first. Again, I've, I've completely co-opted this episode <laughs> in that even the, the documentary for this week is a Steely Dan documentary. I think I'm, I'm going to fully. get, I'm going to get to that album in my ranking. And I think you might too. So we could do it in there in one of ours. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's just jump into the ranking then. <laughs> Would you like me to begin here? Sure. We're we going from the bottom top, like four or three. I or? think we, I think we go from the bottom. We might even have overlap, although I don't think so on this first one, which, um, which is a tie for me between Katie light and can't buy a thrill. Um, Katie lied, which I've only just listened to, so there's a recency bias of about 10 minutes there, um, <laughs> wherein it's the last music I possibly heard before coming on the show. Um, really solid album that, like I say, that's their transitionary point. Uh, so Katie Lied is also an awkward album in between their rock origins and moving into a fusion sound. Um, I, I don't even know. I might uh, play a little bit of Bad Sneakers. Yeah. From from what I have listened to, I haven't listened to a lot of Katie live uh, live, or, you know, in my time with with the Dan here. But there's a there's a couple of good songs. Um, I, I like Black Friday, um, but overall, it's it's not one that has stuck with me as as much. So it's not going to make my ranking this time. But uh, Can't Buy a Thrill definitely as their debut album with uh, their their most famous songs and a, a great uh, collection of classics on there is is, is tough to beat. It's hard for an album like Can't Buy a Thrill to just come out and not feel like a greatest hits album right away. It kind of feels right, that right. way well, already. And, that, and that's kind of the crazy thing is that it's like it's got all of the like the most iconic Steely Dan songs and it's their debut album in 1972. So like how how often do you have such a strong first album first, you know, break onto the scene like that? Absolutely. Um I feel like we need to hear a little bit of Brooklyn from that. I love Brooklyn, certainly. Uh, you know, of course, again, you've got um, 
Hold on, I'm pulling up the the the, the, the track list again. Yeah, and you got uh, do it again, dirty work, of course, are, which are like the two staples, and they're right at the front of a debut album. Get out of here! That's crazy. Oh, I know, Dirt, dirty work is so wonderful, and I, I think kind of what like put me back in the Steely Dan mood initially was when that first Suicide Squad trailer dropped. <laughs> really? Um, what was that? I don't. I didn't watch. Well, because they, because they they used dirty work in the trailer. Oh, they That's did the pop song okay. that they used, and I was like, mm, this is a, a good use of this, and it kind of like the the juxtaposition of the laid-back sound of the song with the with the violence you're seeing going on it was good i thought it was a a, a decent trailer and it and it felt like a james gunn trailer so i thought it was a, a a good song choice for that and it worked well it had that guardians vibe that you know the film you know was going for no idea about the film don't know if you're gonna discuss it at all but uh i thought the song in the trailer was good and it gave me great you know steely dan vibes again but um the the whole album I think for for Camp Biothrills just got lots of and lots of good hidden gems in there as well like Fire in the Hole and Midnight Cruiser. Yeah, Midnight Cruiser really good. Uh, really like Midnight Cruiser. Mm -hmm. Um, was it your number three or my, did you have my, a, a separate three? My number three was uh, Gaucho, which like oh. you, like you with uh, <laughs> um like you with Katie Lied is uh, only the one I've most recently listened to. I've listened to it this week since you mentioned it last week. I've kind of fully dove into it, but uh, I've, I've fallen in love with it. And the only reason it's at three is because it is just that, you know, very recent time. Like, like I, I haven't had as much time with it as the other albums here, but there's some I, I really, really love on this album. And uh, it's, it's kind of a de debate to go, you know, maybe like number two instead on this, but uh, you know, I think it's got such a strong opening with uh, Babylon Sisters having this yeah. really great vibe to it. And, and of then course, straight into Hey 19. They are a band where yeah. the first two songs are always like so crucial. I mean, they don't have like filler up front. It's, mm -hmm. You're right into a Steely Dan record when you start one. I love that. Yeah, and this this whole album is got probably one of the most laid back feelings of their their entire oeuvre. There, I'd say of of like really energetic songs. You've only really only got one with uh, "Time Out of Mind," yeah. which is a total banger. I, I love is. "Time Out of Mind," um, but I think I, every song on that was really good, except for maybe the last one, uh, Third World Man." I'm I'm not as yeah, I, I don't. That would be the only one I. It might cut. It it is well, a pretty short album too. Yeah. Oh, and and it's a shame that it's at the end of the album too. Like so, it kind of ends on a sour note, and that's mm, not uh, that that's an unfortunate aspect to it because every other song I really like. Uh, you know, even my rival, which kind of uh, is is less strong than the others, but I I really love the groove that it gets into as it kind of goes along. But for sure. Otherwise, every other song is, is really great on it, and uh, you know I, I'm really excited to spend even more time with it. Of course, the the title track "Gaucho" is uh, so much fun, and uh, you know, like you said as well, I think this one has the the most jazz influence. And I think, based on your your initial reaction when I said it at three, uh, I've got a feeling where where you might put this one instead. I'll be discussing it in at least a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine um, you can't say for sure. I think uh, my secondary will be pretty obvious and clear here. Um, I'm going with Asia for the second. Um, you can't really get around it again. What are the first two songs or the perfect songs? Black Cow and Asia. Come on. Like, those are two of the greatest songs ever made, and they're at the front of an album here. Um, this is why I can't, like, move, can't buy a thrill up any further, because, 
like these two are such stone cold classics to me and asia really i think is the sound that they're working to their entire career uh, we have to play a little bit of um daniel fagan rapping to black cow here <laughs> Uptown, baby. Uptown, baby. We get down, baby. I find a crown, baby. Yeah, that was that was a great thing. That was, yeah, you know, in in the dock. I thought that was very funny. Um, obviously, that'll come up. And uh, Asia, I've actually left off the list here for me, though I really wanted to put That's it on. That's surprising. But I uh, I decided to because I'm like, uh, if we're gonna talk about everything, like we're gonna talk about Asia pretty in depth with the dock. So I was like, maybe I'll just you know talk about these other three for now but like well, really, what about like, peg one of their greatest hey. songs as well i mean <laughs> that's why this was this was so hard you don't know how damn hard this this was like i don't even know if this is like a real ranking honestly. right yeah like this is just like i love all of these albums and here is a, uh, a general number that i put on there that i'm feeling at this very second that probably won't last even after this recording like it's it's torture to ask me to rank these albums yeah man. <laughs> well to be fair to Asia only being second and not being on yours. I think every track on this is actually great. I don't think there is a missing track on this that's uh, bad. I got the I news, agree. fantastic. Deacon Blues, great. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I okay. love. I, I love Home at Last. Uh, I kind of almost wish it was like the, the the last song on the album because it's just got this great. Like it, uh, I feel like I'm swaying on the ocean listening to the chorus oh, of that song. Yeah. It's total yacht rock vibes again. Mm-hmm. And of course, Asia is a is a beautiful song. I think it might be their most beautiful song, and uh, you know it's, it's one of the reasons it stuck out. And I, I I had that recording that I did when they did it live, is just um, the you know the kind of the, the majestic, uh, serene sounding piano on on that song is is really a highlight. And of course, the saxophone solo in Deacon Blues is is one of the best. It was it was hard to leave it off, but like I said, the the I thought I would be covering it enough with the the documentary, <laughs> so I'm like, ah, uh, you know, it's a it was a viable excuse to talk about three other great Steely Dan albums. <laughs> Should we just talk about the documentary now, or do you have more on it after we get through the Dan? Let's let's get through the Dan. I think let's okay. just round out our ranking. Let's here hear your two then. My my number two was uh, Can't Buy a Thrill, mm-hmm. which again it was just it was hard to argue against the the sheer number of great songs on here. Like unlike some of the other ones, which you know, including Gaucho, which are shorter albums, this one is uh, a lengthier one. Uh, and again, another case where I wouldn't take any song off of it. I think they're all really great songs, not just the, the really popular classics like, uh, reeling in the years and do it again, which, you know, have the issue of, I guess, like radio overplay. So over the years, you're just, you know, overexposed to them. Or you could even look at it like mall music. Like it's just something that's played in like eighties malls or seventies malls. There, there's some sense where like something like do it again is, almost like like so ridiculously overplayed but at the same time like if i want if i just sit down and absorb the song i can just appreciate how incredibly composed and written it is uh unlike some other really overplayed songs that you hear on the radio all the time again like there's there's some really great um you know lively tracks throughout like i mentioned you know fire in the hole i think brooklyn is also one of, one of their most beautiful songs and um you know kings is, is a lot of fun 
it's it's just a really really solid album and again for it to be a debut is is damn incredible yeah um it, it is like the perfect radio music too i mean there is something to something being made to the radio so it gets played there and it does i mean it, it works yeah yeah and 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 uh for that and especially if you want to compare it to other so-called like radio albums or more you know popular music you know more pop music from the time this one stands out for being you know much more unique again the steely dan identity is all over this even if it's more you know pop centric than their later works and, and like I said, com- comparing to other artists of the time, you know, it still just it blows them out of the water right out, right out the gate. Yeah. Um, well, for my number one. <laughs> yep. Uh, I think we've kind of gone over it, but I have Gaucho, which is uh, which I connect to most personally. I think it is their hardest edged album. I think it is Walter Becker finding his girlfriend overdose and dead in his apartment, and then going in recording some really cutting tracks where you could hear the even the addiction on their voices and the the sounds of the uh, studio musicians it's also their most la album which means that it's more expansive in a west coast way in new york i think the documentary gets into that that uh, session players become more rigid and they they take greater risk but in the west coast maybe they play it safer but they're experimenting still in a different way with funk and uh, Jimi Hendrix coming into the scene and uh, the the session players, um, they you know like I think they said in the doc they come out in California and they they bring their own drum set and they have another one loaded in the trunk like there's so much empty space in California that you're kind of playing into like the vastness of the land and uh, the fewer songs but I think more expansive songs I think songs that uh, might have a little bit more depth and character and they're talking about something other than their own experiences they're they're writing about what they're seeing and and feeling at the time but also they um figured something out with like syncopated drum tracks and figuring out where disco was going before it got there uh steely dam was always at the precipice of like a musical development they wouldn't do something that was happening right now in music because they realized that's the way to date yourself I guess that's a problem I have with their early stuff is it's right now for the 70s, but um, in some way it's dated back to then. Whereas Gaucho sounds like it could have been made yesterday and it would be new music. It would be exciting music. It would be something that like Gil Scott Huron could have made that would have been a timeless jazz piece mixed with rock. Um, and it has their finest touch, I think, on just like the editing of the music and bringing in sessions musicians on every other song and um i i think it is even better than asia although um the songs the tracks themselves as a cohesive whole might be better in asia this is one i relate to and i feel the addiction on it and the uh, uh the despair in it but also the california of it all so uh really very passionate about gaucho i like the idea of gaucho as an image which is just like a mexican cowboy mm-hmm. stand there with like a sombrero and a poncho and a big cigar uh, i i just like gaucho just gets that that really big image in my mind uh, I I think you make a, a terrific case for it, and again, the only reason why it's it's so low on my list there is because you just uh, experienced it, right? So, uh, yeah, just yeah. very very recent. I'm still getting into it and absorbing it, but uh, I'll say as well, like this last week, it's also the most the one I listened to the most because yeah. it's it's kind of stuck out to me the most. Again, the most tracks that I'm really like, oh, I want to hear Babylon Sisters again, or man, that that chorus in Gaucho is is just so much fun and so <laughs> kind of offbeat. Would you care to explain? Why is he standing in your spangled 
also, you know, Time Out of Mind is just such a, a slapping tune, you know. Uh, and, and yeah, the, you know, the only other reason, you know, being so low is that it's, it's really impossible with, with how many good albums, great albums there are here. You know, if, if you give Gaucho to any other band, it's instantly <laughs> their, their, their best. Yeah. You know, and like I say, it is a dark horse, even among like the fan like mm-hmm. community. I don't feel like Gaucho's upheld above Asia at all. So, um, for me, I think it's a very personal thing and me liking the West Coast experimentation, yeah. realizing there's enough New York mus- musicians, and there's a rigid history of jazz in New York, and I understand why they go along those fundamentals, but uh, for me, a West Coast experience that feels new and distinct and timeless, I think that's interesting. Well, and particularly for, you know, the the more uh, mainstream, you know, crowd or whatever, like, as far as singles off the album, all you really have is A19. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a pretty laid-back single. It know, doesn't for... stand out at all. It doesn't, like, make a comment upon itself about what the album would be. Like, you know, if you just had that single and you went into the album, I don't think you'd get what you wanted either, so... It's still again like like that's not a diss on Hey Nineteen. Yeah. It's a terrific song. I'm wearing a shirt with it, you know, <laughs> on it. Uh, it's just it's definitely very different compared to other singles from other Steely Dan albums. Again, it's it's the dark horse of Steely Dan singles, you know, which yeah. I think is emblematic of the album as a whole. Um, Both because but, it's dark and horse-like. I agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but but for for number one, and I think again, like our, our number one is just going to show how different our taste is here. Mine is uh, Pretzel Logic, which, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it, it may not be their their most consistent or cohesive album. There's definitely a couple on there that I'm like, yeah, like like with a gun is not uh, a favorite of mine on there, but I think it's got such a great collection of tracks. It's got one of their most famous with uh, opening with Ricky Don't Lose That Number, which I think is a song that most everyone knows as well. But also just some really like fun and interesting stuff. I love the the, the weirdness, like like the weird sound of Berrytown again. Like the <laughs> yeah. it's a great encapsulation of that intonation I was talking about with with Fagan's vocals, where it's just it's kind of up and down all over the place there. And then Parker's band is just like a really energetic, you know, fun one to to run with, and it's got that big band style. And I think it's, if we're going to talk about jazz influence on here, you need to talk about Pretzel Logic because there's a goddamn Duke Ellington cover there on is. this album yeah. with East e St. Louis uh, Toodledoo. We do a fun thing with it. Oh yeah, it's it's a it's a really great cover, and I and I and I love it, and it's and again it just exemplifies the kind of like like the fun that they're they're having here and the experimentation, you know, turning the the the, the piano, uh, you know, the, the main piano melody into a a, a guitar part there, um, with, the, with with the speaking guitar, uh, yeah, uh, element. I think any major dude will tell you really fantastic song. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe yeah, my yeah, favorite. And, favorite song or favorite on the album favorite on this album yeah yeah i think it's a it's a really good one and then it, it also has kind of like a, a a darkness that it gets to by the end with something like charlie freak yeah, yeah which is which is super cool it's a very varied album and uh i think you know full of a lot of fun and i like the again you get, you get lots of you know more of that uh classic jazz influence with something like the title track as well with pretzel logic yeah, I, li- I like Pretzel Logic. I like the sound of Pretzel Logic and how unique it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I say, by this third album, they're really getting away from that initial sound and doing things that are experimental and interesting to me. Uh, yeah, I'm very yeah. fond of it. I think, again, it's a, it's a terrific album. It's also, I think, the one 
that I that I first really like began to appreciate the idea of Steely Dan with. Again, like I was familiar with Can't Buy a Thrill and the big songs from there, but you know, more so as like a passing thing, like, oh, these are great songs by this band called Steely Dan. But Pretzel Logic was my first real like Steely Dan album, if, if you know what I mean. For sure. And I can see how that could be a very good connection for you. I don't like Ricky Don't Lose the Number. I, not my favorite song. I, I, I can see that. I can see the reasoning why, but I think uh, it's, again, it's not the best song on the album, nor is it like the best of their more pop hits and stuff, but I still think it's a great one, and it's, <laughs> you know, kind of maintained, uh, you know, uh, a reputation for, for good reason, you know, and, and uh, resonance in the popular conscious, you know, and, and I think it's also, again, another great kind of like atmospheric one to open the album with. It's not uh, th- this one, unlike some of the others we've said, doesn't have like the double bangers out the gate necessarily. Yeah, it doesn't. But it's still again. Like, I, I love the the variance of it and the the um, the depth that you kind of get with the different styles throughout. That is the difference. This one goes further into a depth as it goes. As you say, it gets darker as it proceeds. Pretty much every track, uh, it starts as bit pretty basic mall rock with Ricky, but then it it really gets into some jazzy stuff later. So mm-hmm. it's cool. Yeah, and and I think there you can see a real difference, like on the on an A side B side deal with like uh, up to the the Duke Ellington cover, and then afterwards, you know. So I I feel a real difference between the two sides of of this album here, which is something I really love about it. Yeah, um, I feel good about this. Uh, I don't know how much music I should really put in there, but uh, I'm I'm happy we did this. I'm 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 super excited. Uh, again, I was I was pumped to talk about Steely Dan with you, and we're not done. We have no. a whole documentary to to go over too. We both watched a documentary. Um, we did. Do you, do you know what this originally aired on? Was it a VH1 or a um, was it? It was on a music channel, right? I, or was I have, it not? I, I have no idea. I was not aware of this okay. until you brought it up last week, and and then I wasn't sure. Like like I I was just fully committed to making co-opting this as a steely dan episode and like i'm not dropping the ball this time i'm going to follow through on that discussion we hinted towards last week so i was like all steely dan all week here we go mm-hmm. and so i set out i watched the documentary this morning you know no no less than like half hour ago i, I finished wrapping it up and i was really taken with it like like as a documentary as well not just like vibing to steely dan music i was like this is a really good deconstruction of an album here Uh, the most the weird or interesting thing about asia that makes this kind of thing hard is that they lost a lot of the master tracks (laughs) there's like a whole half the album they can't possibly go over in documentary like i got the news and uh, some of the later selections and they have they lost some of the master tracks so uh, the best they could do for some of them is sit and listen to them but that means not bringing up some important session musicians but at the same time i feel like it's a really good view of uh, Fagan and Becker's contribution to that album and where they're coming from. Well, it's just because a lot of the documentary is just them both sitting at a mixing board and like bringing down certain parts and isolating yeah. different tracks and then just talking about them. And then you you complement that with interviews from the, you know, the actual contributors on those sections to the album. And you get a little bit of them like playing the parts and, you know, going over their, their reasoning for it. And it, and it feels again, like, like we said, it's not, just uh fagan and becker as the the figureheads of the band there's all the different contributors that you know come in on different tracks and different albums and stuff and they're all here 
you know, voicing their impact upon the work as well. So the, the, the doc is good to not leave any of that out. And it really highlights all of the various components that go into that went into composing, you know, each song on the album. I mean, it really makes it incredible when you consider how, I guess, what I didn't know about Asia, the way that they brought in not just like session musicians, but they brought in like three groups of them for each song on Asia. And they, they were that perfectionist. They say in the documentary, we want to take perfection and get past the point of perfection and bring it into something where we're just doing it comfortably in the most perfect way, where it's just naturalistic and it's muscle memory. Like that's, that's how far exceeding Asia really becomes like it's exceeding even their grasp of perfection and they're bringing in musicians and, they're not just going with the first take or even a first band used, which is very rare, right? Like uh, modern day, you just you just go with the the first band you have. You'd bring the people in; they'd want to be used on it. You'd go. Mm-hmm. It's it's also just I think really interesting to get their perspective and and uh, like a behind the scenes look at the creative process. It's one thing for someone you know after the fact to sit down and pick apart. Uh, a song or an album and talk about the different components and why you know what works you know does and, and such it's a different thing altogether to get the actual you know musicians behind it to talk about their influences and their reasonings and trying to piece things together one of the the moments that are that really stuck out to me watching was that there's a moment where they're going over deacon blues sitting on the soundboard and uh they 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 catch this this like flute-ish sound it's like a like a synthesizer (laughs) thing right and they turn everything down they're kind of like where the hell did that come from what were we thinking when we were doing this and they're trying to like recall their reasoning behind something and i just i i love that because it's like it's a great example of how you know they're they're the the artistic process is not you know scientific it's really like this experimental and kind of throwing stuff together you know and and doing whatever works uh really for the moment it's not you know like even for the most meticulous craftsmen of it you know the band that's most famous for being beyond perfection as you said there even they sometimes are just you know throwing in whatever to 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 make it work and it does you know i i think something I guess my MVP has to be Fagan for doing the rap of Lord Tariq's Deja Vu. <laughs> Do you know about Deja Vu? That was a... I, I don't. Uh, okay. You'll have to tell so me about it. So it's just a very pop 90s song. You know, Uptown, baby, got the crown. And it's just like one of those Uptown beats that's all like New York. But um, they went, Lord Tariq went into his record producer. He's like, yeah, I got the, I got the sign off to use Steely Dan. He hadn't. <laughs> So Steely Dan sued him for a lot of money, but that's funny that that Fagan's still joking about it and and in good spirits, considering that uh, he was never asked to be used. Uh, after the right. '80s, um, sampling was a, a producer's game. Uh, people were being sued left and right. So uh, right, it, it, was, it, it was for up. Black Cow, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Took, yeah. yeah from Which one? One of the great beats, really. Black Cow. Just that opening is is just one of the strongest starts of any song. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's so cool yeah i mean i could see why you'd use it on a rap steely dan has been used on quite a few rap songs um but that one stands out to me mm-hmm. have we talked about by the way where the where the name comes from no we haven't Do you know i don't think i do it's it's a it's a reference to to a a, a phallic device that comes up in william s burroughs naked lunch oh, is it <laughs> okay yep. i've read naked lunch but i, I didn't know that so so that's yep. interesting. That's that's where the name Steely Dan comes from, which is <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. 
Uh, and and that kind of gets around like the conjecture that they're just like this yacht rock band because they really are um, a lot edgier and more acerbic than I think their their music plays as. Even well, I, if it's playing at a mall, it still wants to hurt you emotionally. So. I I think what's interesting is hearing all of the the influence you know from them. Like one of the other interesting things that comes through in the documentary is when Fagan towards the end is talking about all their film influences and yeah. being like taken yeah. by like composers like Elmer Bernstein and um, you know they they make mention of Henry Mancini at one point and he he, he drops a reference to like the fake jazz sound of Sweet Smell of Success at one yeah. point. And, and and you love that, and you hear like this this musical influence, uh, or not mu- musical, I mean uh, film influence, come up in a lot of their work throughout, like sprinkled references to certain things. Lots or of songs so- about watching movies and being yep, in yep. movies, and uh, mm-hmm. um, what was it? A gaucho really is about like uh, Hollywood executives and producers in L.A. I mean, gaucho is really a Hollywood record. It, it's really about that, like specifically in the lyric. So right and. That that uh, idea, that that identity, that push and pull between a New York identity and an LA identity is such yeah. a vital component of Steely Dan's music and the evolution of their sound over time. And so you get that that influence there, their you know New York roots plus the the LA music, you know, uh, being infused together. Right. And again, it's it's all part of this interesting mixing pot that the the band ultimately is, and what makes them so kind of un unmatchable. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think I also wrote a bit about Sparks this year, and Sparks and Steely Dan are like two bands that I think are very imagistically in their music. Like they their lyrics are so pointed that they conjure very specific images, which could be cinematic and could be like you're saying like a a, a sense of a fake jazz score for a music like like the artificiality of it but something that's pointed toward the screen i i see the characters of steely dan when they talk about them i see the gaucho in the kitchen is what i'm saying mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Def- definitely again they they do have a very cinematic quality to their their lyrics especially they paint a picture in your mind and uh that's not easy to do necessarily i think no you know? i think it's very hard <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, and 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 again, there's because most music, most lyrics kind of go for a more universal quality. You know, they're talking about something in a very general sense. You know, and they paint more of an emotional portrait. Whereas a lot of Steely Dance music is almost kind of narrative driven in these interesting Absolutely. ways. Great band, we love them. Uh, the Twin Geeks approved, obviously. <laughs> yes, uh, if you want to, yeah, check out that that. Um, documentary it's uh it's a uh, from a series called classic albums Steely Dan looks like it's Asia. pbs by the way so if you have the pbs app it should be on there but it's on youtube yeah i just found you i couldn't find any others though like i saw they did an oh. episode on elton john's goodbye yellow brick road and i, I said, was looking at that too i, I want to check that one out yeah <laughs> maybe we'll do but, an elton uh, john episode soon i mean we did but okay we we'll can do, do another, another one. one yeah yeah <laughs> i'll happily especially since i've only listened to more elton john <laughs> since doing rocket man same um that could be a ways off, though, so I'm happy that we did Steely Dan for today. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited, and uh, I, I happen to look, as, as a kind of final note here, uh, I see that, that they'll be on tour next year. Oh, they are? Uh-huh. I've got, yeah. a, I've got two concerts lined up for this year. Um, well, who are you seeing this year? Modest Mouse and um, Thievery Corporation later in the year. So. Nice. Uh, well, in, in 2022... Uh, in May, 
Steely Dan will be in both. Uh, they'll be in Portland, and they'll be at the the White River Amphitheater oh, no uh, after that. So uh, I'm looking at ticket prices, and and uh, up close, a little spendy, but maybe worth it. Okay, I don't know. Well, we could talk about that later, maybe. Um, that could be interesting. But um, until then, I have. Uh, uh, four other music docs I watched this week. <laughs> no, we don't need to go through all of them, do we? Uh, I, guess, I did watch. I, guess not uh, all of them. I did watch Scorsese's doc on the band, uh, The Last Waltz. Fantastic. I watched uh, Summer of Soul. I think we might save Summer of Soul. Get to it next week. I think we should really get into this thing if we're being honest. Sure. Yeah, I think we used enough of this episode talking about Steely Dan. I guess we'll save any new movies for next week well, you'll... we're going we're going to have a, a little bit transparency with the audience we're going to have a weird scheduling uh conflict so we're going to record a couple in advance and maybe we could put summer soul in one of those so. yeah yeah i think yeah. that'll that'll be fine you got we got a lot to talk about in the next couple of weeks here <laughs> yeah we have uh and so no no problem I, and i hope everyone will have enjoyed our lengthy steely dan discussion i think <laughs> i sure have i, I think that's I, I important have. so yeah i yep. think it uh when we're getting something out of it, we hope you do too. Why why don't we take a quick break and come back with the sting? The sting. Alright. So hey, how about that old ragtime music from your friends at the Twin Geeks? <laughs> Isn't that great? Isn't that score it's uh, the the opening title music, the entertainer. It's so iconic. Like you you knew it before the movie, I assume. You posted the one of the Universal old um, the nineteen thirty six I think it was logo and it had that playing with it. Does that mean that that used to play with the Universal logo? No, or no? no, no. That okay. one's specifically from the Sting. Like that. Okay. The, the YouTube video I linked in that Letterbox review is it was a collection of. Uh, Didn't that also have the Entertainer behind the? Yeah, because that's okay. the first one. The very first one in the video is the one from the Sting, which has not only the the entertainer music behind it but also the sepia color overlaid over it okay. so again it was a collection of all of that one from that particular period it was like from about a 10 year period that that old like glass globe uh universal logo was used from 1936 to 1946 i believe and that's how the sting opens they use this old logo like a lot a lot of movies kind of do this thing where it's like oh hey let's use that old logo from our, our studio here you know to kind of and give it a, a really nostalgic vibe yeah. And and it's and it's a nice thing. I lo- I love to see that when they dig out those old ones because a lot of the old logos, you know, the old intros are, are way f- better. They're they've got way more <laughs> yeah. artistry to them. And I think this is one of the best examples, as I kind of stated in that review there, because it's just got this nice, ornate, simplistic, you know, glamorous quality to it that sets the tone like like right off the bat. It just it transports you right back into that idea of a of a kind of idealized, you know, uh, 1930s Chicago Depression era where where we tend to like romanticize the 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 poverty, you know, in its own kind of way. Uh, it's it's this, this kind of mystical rendition of the depression yeah i mean the just the american idea of always dealing with the depression and uh, people getting by and that being amplified in the pictures is pretty romantic for for well, our country i think so. it's it's this it's this idealized vision of of the, the the impoverished state where there was all of this you know illegal activity essentially going on that we that we tend to you know portray in, in, in hero examples, be it films from the time, which, you know, kind of like, you know, romanticize the gangsters and, you know, the, the booze running and such, uh, or even these, you know, more nostalgic pictures where, you know, it's, a, it's about the, the hustle and, and getting along and, you know, 
and he's uh, out outmaneuvering of things and, you know, finding success uh, despite that. And, and that's its own version of kind of ro romanticizing and downplaying the tragedy of the financial crisis of the Depression, which, you know, I don't think is inherently bad. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's important to know that, you know, that it's it not a realistic portrait. It's that this is not the depression. I'll be honest, I don't like ragtime music. <laughs> I, I, I was worried when it came on in this thing. I'd say worried was my preoccupation with the movie initially for the first twenty minutes. Worried was a uh, uh, kind of how I feel whenever I hear ragtime music. Uh, culturally, I don't like it. I, you know, I'd I'd prefer the jazz we've been talking about. But uh, then I started thinking more deeply about ragtime music and what it really is and how it's designed. And realize it is a perfect prism for the the sting, because it is really syncopated music with these mysterious things that are kind of hidden behind it, and it is like bringing uh, layers of itself down and up and distressing notes, kind of like the sting is always doing. Well, so, well, uh, I like that. One of the important things to recognize about ragtime music and its implementation to the sting is that it's intentionally anachronistic. Ragtime music was not popular at the time of the 1930s. It should have never it been was, popular, yeah. honestly. So. <laughs> Well, it's it's very reflective of the time period it was popular in, which was, you know, the early 19-teens, you know, and it, and it kind of went in hand in hand with, you know, the, the entertainment of that time being, you know, like vaudeville and such. Yeah. Uh, and but but the usage of it uh, in, in, in The Sting is meant to portray a kind of tongue in cheek sense of what the, the approach is here. And that's why they went ahead with it. And that's why it works so well is that it's. You know, forecasting to you as the viewer that the film is is having fun with this premise essentially, <laughs> and that it's it's going to be like you said, syncopated. It's going to be you know quick and and it's going to be kind of like like witty and and like like. And it's going to have like these hidden notes behind it, right? Like it's going to have these hidden meanings and this veil and this facade. Like effectively, ragtime is a facade of music with with the uh, things depressed and and heightened more than they need to be. So uh, I think the sting does that, but I'm not going to agree with you that ragtime is good to listen to, or that's a good uh, thing. I, I, or that I don't it put on. I'm, I'm not saying that I put on ragtime music to, yeah, to you listen do. to. You, you no. listen to ragtime every day when you wake up. It's your alarm clock in the morning, uh, and you're I, like, "Hey, good to meet the day, old clock." And you, you tip your hat as you walk out the door. <laughs> the hat that I fell asleep in, my bowler, my bowler sleeping hat. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I know you do this. I, I know you tip your top hat and you <laughs> put on your suspenders, get to work. I know it's true. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's. I, I think the sting is one of the the only examples in which ragtime works very well. Unless we're like you know your Emilio Forman film, I guess. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah. It, it works exceedingly well, and there's a reason why the, the music here is so iconic. And uh, one of the important things, that I, I watched the special features on the Blu-ray own as well, and that they kind of point out, and one of the reasons why it works so well is that it's not backing music. It's not uh, underlaid music there. Uh, the music doesn't exist under scenes. It's played, like, in between moments, you know, uh, or, it's, or it's used to accentuate, like, a, one montage sequence early on. It's not used, you know, to underscore anything throughout. The film plays all the dialogue, essentially, with without any scoring, yeah, which is, is part of why. So it makes the music stick out even more, makes it even more prominent and calls attention to itself even more as this, you know, kind of uh, tone setter for, for the the picture in between scenes yeah um 
I think it's I think it's a lot of good pacing and like arrangement of scenes in like a way that they all establish something and they're all building toward a reveal and and I think just how the sting is put together really matters. I'm I'm concerned that you said you were concerned at first when the film started that you were worried by it because this was your first time with this despite being a pretty big Newman and Redford fan and, and having I really a lot of like affection. Newman. Yeah, a lot of affection for their other collaboration with George Roy Hill on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So having not seen this one, which I found a surprise, but, you know, and, and, and then being reluctant when it started, <laughs> that's, that's very concerning to me. But it sounds like it came out happy, so our, our, our podcast can continue here. So <laughs> yeah. tell, tell, uh, tell me a bit more about how that went. Uh, I guess the concern, I love Butch Cassidy, right? And I guess this is sort of a character flip. At least it flips the mustache um, onto different <laughs> characters here uh, between uh, Redford and Newman. And I really like Newman. I like the blueness of his eyes. He's, he's a real hunk on the screen, wouldn't you say? I mean, he's a, he's a really oh, yeah. a charmer, too. So uh, he he kind of gets a little bit backseated to Redford here, which I was a little bit cautious about at first. He's he's definitely more of a supporting player. This is this is Redford in the lead. And initially when they were casting, like the part was written a little differently because it's very clearly a kind of like passing of the torch movie. Like, you know, Newman is brought into the film as this kind of burnt out old timer, you know, like uh, you know, Which I didn't once, like at first, yeah. What what was once great, you know, was once great but kind of lost his edge over the years and is now a, a, a drunkard like you know, I I I love the the beginning where it's kind of revealed and he's like like asleep in between the bed and the wall and he's got like the has got to wake him up by throwing him in the shower <laughs> it doesn't really play for me until they're on the train then then the movie's off to the races for me off to the off to the horse races do you think it's do you think it's just because you want to see newman being great off the bat like you don't yeah, want I to do. see him yeah. <laughs> I, I think that might be a little bit of bias then but you know no i think that's just what i want like i, I think it's fine to want things maybe that is a bias but uh <laughs> But I do prefer, um, I do prefer their but prior I think movie. New Newman is great at this kind of role, though. At the same time, and that's why I think yeah. it really works. Like it's a similar thing later, like he does in like The Color of Money with Scorsese, where yeah, he takes true. this, where he takes this role where where he's, you know, out, you know, he he he's the old timer and he's out of you know the game, but he's still got the skills and he just needs you know the 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 big you know game the one, one big you know scenario to really bring him back into the fold and allow him to play one one of the moments i really love is where you're seeing him do the card trick like he, he's doing his practice before he's going into the the poker game on the train and and you see him doing his skills but then he messes up at the end like he he kind of <laughs> flubs it and and redford gives him the look and you know he's, he says back he's like you just worry about your part like you can see that even though he's still this great man he's got this great skill he's he's still a little out of it he's 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 getting back into the fold here yeah it's funny you brought scorsese there because i thought that was a very color of money moment in the on the card table and i i could see some allusions to that movie in there too and especially in their relationship and the kind of passing of the torch uh, in a way, I could see yeah. those movies connecting in those scenes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's the moment where I realized this is a, a fantastic, great movie, and that um, everything from there was just a uh, you know downhill for me, just coasting on on how uh, watchable these two are. So uh, I was I was very enamored by it after that. Yeah, and 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 I think you know there there is something to say about that. The train scene is so well 
orchestrated the whole the you know and, and it's a tour de force moment for newman where yeah. he's just acting you know entirely wild and, you know this this <laughs> this drunken bit and it's really but, but, well like staged and paced out the whole poker game because that's but another it's, it's like drunk but like acted drunk right like yeah. it's not like he's like authentically drunk he's like a drunk guy uh, you know like a semi buzz guy trying to be more drunk it's very amusing yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> He like burst in. He says something about like you know he was delayed because he had to take a crap or something. Yeah, he literally says I had to take a crap, and, and like all these tough guys are in there just like looking him over. Like, what do you want? Uh, oh, it's supposed to be this very like like professional, you know, like like you know deal uh, between all these guys, and he's just this crass individual bursting in and then <laughs> taking them for all all their money. <laughs> and and that scene is so well paced out as well because that's another thing is that. Um, you know depictions like that where where you're doing like these long you know uh long-winded uh card games or whatnot like in order to play out the tension properly it has to be really meticulously paced you know and you've got to you know really like draw it out you know and kind of have this very stiff you know like a sure idea of a storyboard in your head Mm -hmm. for how the game plays out and how you see it kind of evolve um you know, as it gets closer and closer to the reveal, as the ante keeps getting upped and up. So, particularly when you get to that big, big one at, at the end, where uh, Shaw's had the deck stacked, and you know, he, you know, he's trying, he's gonna rob Newman's character of all his money, and then you get the reveal, and then just the burst of rage that Shaw has afterwards, where he can't yeah. call him out because because he, he cheated you know, Newman too. cheated better. Than, <laughs> it's it's terrific. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I, I loved it. I love the build-up. I love all the people around the card table. I love how it's like filming the cards and him holding it close to his chest, and then, then the cards change, of course, as he lays them down into Jack's. And beautiful. Well, well played. I think it's an incredibly well-structured film from from the beginning of setting up a, a, an emotional investment with you know the uh, Luther's character, with, with Redford's relationship, and then how that plays out, giving him a reason to want to you know, get back and really, you know, take Shaw for all he's worth getting, getting a, assembling a crew together as you do in a typical heist film, because really like that's fast the, and furious. Yeah. The, the sting is a unique kind of heist film is what it is because it's, it's not about taking something in a, in a more literal sense, like you would like an oceans film. Right. And I think it's, it's also kind of like the inverse of an oceans film, because whereas the satisfaction from an oceans film is about, listening to like all the planning go out and watching it unfold you know in in this plant as it's kind of like narrated and demonstrated to you the allure of the sting is is not knowing the planning right exactly yeah. exactly because we're like we we get like the the general idea of what they're going to do in the beginning but the actual like uh events and and ultimately how they unfold and how they pull it over on Shaw's character is left uh unknown to us until the very end and so we're in our own way and 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 that's kind of like the linchpin for me about the sting and what makes it such a kind of uh unique work of genius is that it is a grift in and of itself (laughs) exactly and so okay that's what i have to say is i didn't realize that until the card trick i didn't realize what i was going to get out of this film and after that i was watching for the minutia of the film so closely i was looking at everything as a facade and a facade within a facade as it ends up being well, you know, it reminds me of like this is what like if if you take a step back from it as as a film, and you look at it as as a a work of writing, it's really just like a great testament to perspective, audience manipulation, and and the metering of information, and. 
that's why I think makes it really such a terrific script is that it's just this, this textbook example of how you can lead an audience in, in a certain direction and get them on board only to, you know, kind of pull the rug <laughs> out from them. And again, it's like, it is a, a grift in and of itself. And really what like most films are just taken to that extra degree, this idea that we are being told a lie and are willingly buying into it. Yeah. And, and that's what, that's kind of what every story is in, yeah, in a sense. Right. But this is at, to an extended and, and almost metatextual degree. So I'd say I, I didn't buy into the staginess of it, like the Hollywood sets of it all until I got to that section either, because once you get past that, you get to the most ingenious construction of the, um, the like the horse betting uh, place. What would you call that? Like the, uh, I don't know. They made like a whole stage for their um, horse bets with the guy mm -hmm. doing the announcing behind the curtain. And uh, there, yeah. there's several curtains and layers of obfuscation there. Like they're all actors, like they're actors playing actors. And I think once you really get into that, that's that's special. Yeah. And again, you can look at it kind of almost as like a metaphor for, you know, storytelling or making a film is that yeah. we're, we're watching the film be made in some <laughs> ways. Like you can look at the the horse betting, you know, uh, area, the the setup there as a, a set being constructed for an audience. In this case, the audience is an audience of one for Shaw's character. Everyone yeah. here is working <laughs> solely to manipulate, you know, and fool oh, Shaw's It's so character. genius, man. It, it's <laughs> incredible. I mean, right when I saw it, I, I think we realized that's what's happening, but also I don't think we realized that the final twist at the end of the movie, which is great. And well, yeah, I think people should watch it. But. That's that's the important pin. And I, and yeah. I want to come back to the end, obviously, okay. in, in a little bit here, because, you know, that's, that's kind of like the whole big... <laughs> you know, thing of the film, what everything's building towards and, and how it pulls it off so miraculously. But so, like just the, the little details there, like again, like watching all of the people in, in the room <laughs> all operating on their own, you know, again, like just to fool this this one person, you know, it's it's terrific to see. And again, like I said, a great parallel for movie making as a whole. Uh, uh, but also like the investment in, in certain characters you get there. Like I like how you get the prominence of, you know, the, the partner they have at the uh, beginning there, um, the, the eerie uh, character, who's who's part of Redford's initial grift, which again is, I think, another great scene, another moment where the Wallace pull over you as an audience, where they have the, the you know, the, the robbers taking from Luther, and they, they get the other guy involved who's transporting the money, and then they, you know, trick him into folding his money in with the 5,000. Again, they use, like, actual money you know that they have to trick someone into giving them more and then getting away with all of it which and and that's some of the most fun of the film is just like watching like good tricksters <laughs> pull over you know and, and seeing the tricks again it's like it's like watching and learning about a magic trick you know and seeing how it's fooled like you you love to as an audience just see how the how the trick is performed and love learning about it i love that it also is more poker than it is um it's more poker than ho horse races, even at that point. I mean, they're still playing card games, effectively. Uh, I mean, the whole movie is effectively, you know, uh, a manifestation of a card game with the audience and the uh, the people in it and uh, who's playing what hand. And, you know, it's isn't all it, a big bluff. Isn't it interesting how cinematic, like, poker <laughs> tends to be? Like, yeah, it's think, very think good. About, think about how many great poker scenes there are in movies you know you don't think about it as an inherently a cinematic game but at the same time it is because it's so much more about 
reading facial expressions and the performance of the other person there. <laughs> right. And it is about like, you know, the the actual like strategy of the game. There's day. a good tension in every poker game. Every hand of poker has a good tension to it and a natural climax and ending and a beginning. Yep. And uh, I think poker's great because it has a beginning, it has stakes, it has tension, then it has an ending where there's a resolve for everything. And, and it has ways to cheat and play it and uh, to be baffling and and hide your cards. I think it's very fun cinematically. Uh, yeah, and and you can just see just by the, the history of cinema how well it's lent itself, you know, to to the craft over time. I think it, when I watch the actors kind of like stumbling around the room, just doing their like, oh, oh I'm an actor thing. <laughs> you know, I remember this game like Spy Party that was at PAX for like five years, where you uh, one character plays a person at a party, another is a spy, and they have like their uh, sniper rifle aimed on the party. And the player tries to act like the computer characters, like it tries to blend in. And the other person's like trying to identify, so which person's here is the actor? Like, that's kind of how I feel watching these guys just go through there. Oh, I'm an actor. I'm an actor as an actor kind of thing. That's, mm-hmm. that's great. I, I think the film is, again, like any good heist film, filled with such a colorful cast, not just with, you know, Newman and uh, Redford, who exude this great, you know, chemistry and charisma on their own and together there. But you have all these intertwining other characters. You know, you've got like Eileen Brennan running the 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 whorehouse. You know that they're functioning yeah. in as well. She's a great component. I love Ray Walston in in like everything. He's a great support supporting actor in lots of Billy Wilder films. <laughs> and uh, he's you know he he uh, you know he does a lot of the planning behind the scenes here. Harry uh, Harold Gould is Kid Twist. You know, I love when both of them together. This is fun. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, when they have to go, like they've got this, they've, they've built up this scenario with the, uh, the Western Union office and then Shaw wants to see it and, and get the personal connection there. So they have to, and, and again, it's just, it's one of those, the fun things about heist films where you have to see them improvise and come up with these cunning plans. And so they, you know, fake these documents to come in and, and like make a, a work order for painting the office in the, uh, a Western Union so that they can pose as, as the guy there and uh, Walston's character paints half the room and then they just leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then the other guy walks back in the door, sees it's half painted, shakes his head. And yeah. that's, again, that's another that's one of the great things about this thing is that it's a really funny and fun movie. There's, it is. There's a funny. lot of humor and, and joyousness to it, which is why, again, like the, the, the ragtime score really complements that. Uh, but all the while, you also have like these real stakes going on that are kind of intertwining with things with the, the police plot and the, you know, the goons plot where everyone is kind of after Redford. And, he's, and, and so <laughs> yeah. like in the midst of all this planning, sometimes he'll just have to like start running like away yeah. from Charles Durning, who shows up like uh, that, that. There's that dynamic scene where it's like he's like in the middle of a phone call and Durning just like breaks into the phone booth with his gun. And then uh, Redford has to kind of improvise an escape plan from there. And that's I mean, a lot of fun. Even when he's like in the restaurant, he's with the woman that he's trying to like pair off with and try to find safety. Eventually, she's also like a suspect that's paired against him. Like everyone, even the, even the guy he trusts most is really against him at some point. So. And well, and it's interesting as well because he's like he's being chased by men employed by Robert Shaw yeah. because he stole money from them while also simultaneously hatching a plan with Shaw himself, who is un who, who's totally unaware that he's the guy who stole his eleven thousand dollars. <laughs> it's a very good tangle, and, and I think that's yeah. what I like in a heist: is all these uh, complicated threads happening well, at once. And it's also all very 
clear like it's yeah. not convoluted it's you know you've it's got a, a very clear intersection of all these elements going on i was also worried at first it was going to be too mechanical and i think it is mechanical like a like a puzzle like these pieces have to go together but um yeah it's I, and it's, they, it's they definitely have very to work this way it's very plot centric uh everything is kind of operating all towards you know a conclusion with all the intertwining elements you know sometimes there's a little bit of breathing room where you're just taking in the the characters for a moment or whatnot yeah but most of the time everything is moving forward towards this plan uh but it's all very well communicated and again oh, yeah. stru structured exceedingly well even more so when you consider what's left off the table for you to again because again like the whole time you think you have the whole puzzle you think you've got <laughs> yeah. everything but you don't and yeah. that's that's like the the real secret again that the film has given you enough information and in what sounds like everything so that you've got you think you've got the whole picture but there's like a whole other component which they're which they allude to in in other you know parts of the film early on they just don't tell you everything again like you're kind of watching everything there's there's a great thing where, where, they, where they kind of forecast that early on where they say that you know shaw's character he has to think that he you know he he's gotten you know taken that he's you know that there's nobody else, nothing left you know he can't walk away and think that you know he, he had his money stolen essentially right yeah he's, he's got to be convinced that he's you know that, that that it's gone yeah it really is like the linchpin that final detail too i mean but, and but they don't tell you necessarily how that's going to be the case you're just left <laughs> right. to watch the whole plan unfold and again I, I like the chapter structure of the story too usually i don't like when when films kind of like break the reality and you know kind of you know showcase things in here like even even something small like that when, when the film starts out it's like oh chicago 1936 or whatever i'm like i i, I don't like that in movies no uh just because it's like it's really unnecessary that's information you can get very easily through the verisimilitude of of the environment and the characters and stuff but something like the the chapter setup especially when it's accompanied by the the beautiful artwork done by richard amsel who you know also did the the great iconic poster for the film mm -hmm. uh i think it's it's a really beautiful way to break up the segments of the story as well and also kind of lay it out as this plan that's unfolding that you that you get the sense of as well it works very well with the material it does work well as dividers they're very aesthetic too they're very pleasing to look at they fit the ragtime thing kind of tie that thing together so that's yeah nice. it's 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 kind of almost like in in a silent film where you have artistically styled intertitles, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's, they are it's like using, again. It's and and it's utilizing that static part of the medium to a fuller degree that you wouldn't otherwise see, and I think that's that's a kind of essential thing that's left out of a lot of films that otherwise use text on screen. In a lot of examples, they don't think about it in a kind of dynamic or cinematic sense whereas the they, they take the extra effort to add a level of artistry here that you could argue is unnecessary but i think is necessary to keeping it a kind of cohesive uh experience there yeah well i really like this thing and i'm glad you brought it to me here i uh so i think then i guess uh if you we, want to keep going on this thing. Well, well, we haven't talked about the end. We haven't talked about yeah. the whole purpose. I didn't know, you know if we wanted to spoil it or if, if, or if this is for only people who have seen this uh, old well, movie. Well, I think it's good to talk about it here again because I right. think it's I think it's the whole thing, the, the real exclamation on the end of the film that makes it so grand. So if you haven't seen The Sting, this is going to be one of our rare spoiler warnings where you should go see it right now and then come back and listen. 
Yeah. We only make a podcast for people who watched 60-year-old movies already. So. Yeah. I mean, you, you should yeah. see this movie by now if you haven't. It's a Best Picture winner. You know, I'm sure there are plenty of you out there who are pedantic enough to go cross it off your list. And it won seven of them. Seven Best Pictures, which is a lot. Do you, do you think this film deserved Best Picture? What, what was else was it up against there? Well, well let's see. Uh, off the top of my head, I know it wasn't in the running, but... Uh, like I would only pick one other film from that year over it, at least in my mind, which is uh, Bogdanovich's "What's Up, Doc." Sure, that's better. Uh, in in, yeah. in some way, I don't know. It's a it's a very different film. It's better. So <laughs> we'll we'll cover that um... at, at some point as well. I don't know. I'm also betting this one will grow on you more as you uh, don't have as many issues with the beginning. Let's see Let's what see. else was that year though. Um, American Graffiti, no. Cries and Whispers, ah, the ex- the Exorcist. Exorcist is better, yeah. I think that's Touch better. Yeah. I I can yeah. yeah, I can I can take that argument. I just I love this thing so much. Again, it's I'm I'm already, you know, prone to taking to these more like fun, more lighthearted experiences in general, something that's more eminently rewatchable to me than than The Exorcist, but like if no, you No. If you want, no way. Yeah. I can't even I can't even accept that having seen Exorcist you can't accept, thirty you can't times. Accept yeah. that this is this is more rewatched like more no no way than the best horror movie ever made. No, it's again it's a it's an intense experience. <laughs> All I'm saying is that it's more like like watchable. I'm not saying it's better. I get, uh, I, I could argue, but you know, uh, I, I if you want to argue, argue that, that The Exorcist yeah. is better, I, I think that's that's totally fine to do. But this I, again, I I can absolutely see why this won that year but regardless yeah. <laughs> again um, because I, I, they I think, hate horror in hollywood yeah if, if the exorcist had won that year i think that would have been fine that well. would have been and, better and, and maybe movies. even yeah. maybe even more deserve again like yeah like you said but uh more uh, more beneficial to things going forward it would have like really opened up horror for you know to flourish in hollywood in yeah. the, the late 70s maybe it did it anyway but um i, I don't think the sting really opened up like you know <laughs> anything rag, yeah the, the ragtime genre really i don't think it, winning, so it's a closed door this thing um, well that's the thing is that, and that's what's part of what's so special about it is that it's so unique it's like such a singular kind of film even within the kind of like heist genre or like the throwback you know style you know the you know the 1930s you know uh, nostalgia you know uh pastiche style even it stands out as a singular effort even within that uh sect oh, and, should we do the ending real quick yeah 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 again like the big thing with the ending is that it's it's an entire subversion of everything that's been building up and it and it kind of reaches this you know very very quick uh you know climax that that kind of explodes in in uh kind of chaotic violence it's funny and it's it's hilarious it's action it's it's great it's a great ending and 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 in that chaos both newman and uh redford's (laughs) characters are killed they're just shot very unexpectedly uh as after we we've gotten these conversations with redford's character with working with the having to work with the fbi being pressured to turn in newman's character and then when they come in and bust the raid you know they they raid the place at the end and then uh you know and and that's you know and, and it gets shaw's character out of the mix there so he's not involved in everything and then Right, right afterwards as all the chaos kind of like comes to an end and, and Sean Durning's character escorted out, you know, of the calamity, everyone just kind of like breaks into a laugh and, 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 and Newman and Redford get up and you realize that that was the ruse from the beginning that the yeah. FBI's involvement, which we've been, you know, kind of like dreading and like like avoiding throughout the, the film, uh, you know, 
they've they've been in on it and they've been <laughs> yeah. part of the, the part of character. And that was that was the whole key to making sure that that Shaw would never question the loss of his half a million dollars that he puts into the race. I think it's a movie that as it goes and as it gets to its completion, it feels smarter all the time. It feels like it's doing so much more the more it does. Yeah, well, and, and I and I think about this in the context of great movie tricks, you know, great movies that that kind of you know pull the wool over you or intentionally manipulate your your expectations here. Because again, the, you the really whole, like to be tricked. You're like, oh, you tricky director, you got me that time. That's you your know favorite me. kind of movie. I love, yeah, I love the magic of the movies. <laughs> I like I like to see things that you can't see, you know, otherwise. I like you know the the this kind of technical trickery you see in in films. I also like these you know kind of like re- reversals of things or these great payoffs, you know, to things that are set up. I like. I like when a structure really goes well. That's why I really love like Billy Wilder movies, especially because the mm. scripts are just so well like coordinated and things come back into the fold and stuff. So that that stuff paying off, it just it, you know it sends me all a flutter. And I think the Sting is just such a great example because again, it's it's got that payoff without <laughs> the the forecasted you know setup there. But you know once once that piece comes in, it like clicks. And again, like I said, on on a more metatextual level, the film is a testimony about the 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 insight and value of trickery in in general again the film is a grift on us as the audience we are fooled because we're we think we're being you know le- uh, led in on the trick the entire time you know they've they've shown us their hand you know because we're on the side of the grifters but really we're just as you know fooled as shaw's character is at the right. end of the film there yeah and that's and again, it's a it's a great testament to that i that idea that of you know story structure and how you know information conveyed to the audience can be manipulated. I think it's a it's a textbook example of how to do that. Totally, yeah. Uh, and, I like subversiveness too. I think I like subversiveness in other ways than you well, do it's, sometimes. But. It's it's subversive in a way that isn't like patting itself on the back for being yeah. subversive. You know, like we, we talk a lot about those, you know, kind of like cheap films nowadays that use, you know, subversion of expectations as, as like this, you know, reason, you know, raison d'etre or whatever. And that is more or less, you know, like the kind of like central idea of, of this thing that, you know, it's a film about grifters that is grifting the audience, Yeah. but it doesn't like, you know, again, it's not like, it's not the reason it exists. It's not a reason that the sting is a movie, but uh, I don't know. I I don't mind it. If it's a reason that a movie exists, a subversion could be a good reason. It's depending on who it's hurting and why, right? Like if, if it's subverting like social structures and classes and race and all that, well, if it's that's subverting it just to, if it's if it's subverting things just to be subversive, that's when things are are frustrating because then that's not really you know su- you know subversive. This yeah. is <laughs> right. This is subverting a a formula again, an expectation of story structure, and yeah. and that's why I think it's really smart and it's using the vessel of grifters uh, in the 1930s to do that. And I think thematically that matches what the film achieves in such uh, a, a nice, really beautiful stylistic way. And, you know, again, just kind of like really uh, diving into that aesthetic of the time, this intentionally fabricated experience, but still one that's kind of like beautifully rendered this fantastical idea of the, the 1930s and its style with all the pinstripe suits and stuff that you've got going on. You know, I, I love the exaggerated nature of it. Edith Head's costumes are, are, are terrific and stylish. And again, it's just, 
you know, beautiful vision of, uh, you know, the Depression era Chicago that we, we have in our in our minds, but isn't necessarily real. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, thanks for bringing this to me. I like I'm, this thing. I'm so glad that it ended up working well for you. And again, especially that, you know, even though you had your doubts at first that it really paid off. Uh, and, and I hope it's one you will continue to enjoy, even if less so than The Exorcist. <laughs> There's no chance it's more than The Exorcist. But um, possibly next week, uh, we're, we're visiting a cinematic classic that I, you're just, I you're could like. Me, you're giving me everything. I think uh, Claire's knee watch really paid off. because you're just, <laughs> you're just giving me everything I love now because we're tackling Metropolis next week, which, yeah. oh, oh, man, talk about appealing to my interests. I can't wait to talk about the very special experiences I've had with that film in particular. I, over I can't time. wait also, to talk about not having any of them. Also, I, I know. I'm, I, all, all I can pray is that it's, it's not something that you like end up like not liking. It's because, Fritz Lang. So I think the odds are already good given its reputation, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, there's, there's some dissent, but I think generally it's agreed to be a pretty unimpeachable classic and, and still mighty impressive for for its uh, time and even up till today. Uh, I certainly have lots of thoughts on it, and I can't wait to talk about it from a historical perspective, from a filmmaking perspective, from, you know, just a, a monumental achievement perspective, all sorts of things. It's going to be a really exciting podcast, so yeah. stay tuned for that next week. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Make sure to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at the Twin Geeks, and individually, at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast, Pavlos and Brogan, as well as our monster-ranking show, Ranking the Monsters, with uh, Stephen and Cal. Uh, both are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Play us out, Cal. <laughs> <laughs>